This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of July 10, 2017, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 437 of Defender Radio. Before we get started on this week's interview, which I promise you is a good one, we need to have a little talk. Traveling through and between national parks and other green spaces is a great way to see some of the incredible animals who call our beautiful country home. But when people pull off to the side of a highway for a picture, or try to get closer to an animal for a selfie, and even consider feeding them by hand, it isn't just dangerous. It's just plain dumb. Too often these days, I'm writing or talking about animals who get put into the position where they've lost their proximity tolerance with people, or start seeing humans and human-centric areas as food sources as a result of this kind of behavior. Though non-lethal solutions are available, this often results in wildlife agencies or law enforcement officers killing an animal they see as a potential threat to people. Now, I know if you're listening to this show right now, you you probably already know all of this, and you respect wildlife enough to let them be wild. So what I'm asking of you today is to be a narc. I want you to call Parks Canada if you're traveling through Banff National Park and see someone trying to feed a bear. I want you to call the OPP if you're going down Highway 401 and see someone pull over to get a shot of a moose. And even if there's someone feeding squirrels and raccoons in their backyard, I want you to call your local municipal bylaw officers. Because it's up to all of us to speak for the animals. And sometimes, it's as simple as making a phone call to stop dangerous behavior. Now with that out of the way, let's get started with this week's interview. At one time, the Vancouver Island Marmot held a comfortable position as a unique rodent in high-altitude meadows on their namesake territory. And then humans came along, and we all know how that goes. Vast changes to the ecosystems surrounding the marmots' home ranges resulted in a disastrous drop in their populations. They were below 30 marmots on the entire island at one time. Thankfully, the Vancouver Island Marmot Recovery Foundation was formed, and just last week they released their 500th captive-bred marmot into the ecosystem. Today, there is a more stable population of around 200 marmots living on Vancouver Island, and while there is much work left to be done, things are looking better than ever. Adam Taylor of the Vancouver Island Marmot Recovery Foundation joined Defender Radio to celebrate the 500th release to discuss the hard lessons learned about reintroducing these unique rodents into an unforgiving and difficult habitat, and why keeping this small but genetically separate population of marmots healthy matters. So the big news is that you guys have now released 500 by Vancouver Island Marmots, uh, which is really incredible when we know the whole story. And the best place to start that story is at the beginning. Um, So let's start. What are Vancouver Island Marmots? Who are these little guys? So Vancouver Island Marmots are a large squirrel, member of the squirrel family, Um, and we have, we have about four species of marmots in Canada. The Vancouver Island marmot, though, is unique to Vancouver Island. So this is the only place in the world where it lives. There's only six mammals that uh, live just in Canada and nowhere else. So this is a really uniquely sort of Canadian species. And they like to live up in fairly high elevations, the alpine and subalpine areas, 
typically in these uh, alpine bowls, these alpine wildflower meadows that are kept tree-free by avalanches. Um, and up there, they it's a pretty harsh environment for any animal to live in. And so they have some really neat adaptations to be able to survive in that kind of an environment. So they'll, they dig burrows and then they hibernate for seven months of the year. And that, I mean, I think this is where things begin to get a really different from other squirrels. To be able to support that hibernation and to support those uh, short, very active summers, but then long dormant winters, their reproductive rate is really low. So they'll only produce pups once every other year, typically, and typically only give birth to three or four babies when they do breed. So um, not maybe what we think of if you've had squirrels nesting in a tree in your backyard or your attic. Uh, they are, they're very slow reproducers. But then the modifications that they make up in that landscape support a lot of other species that are in, as I say, a really harsh environment, right at the very edge of their ability to adapt. So those burrows we know are used by species like garter snakes and western toads. Uh, we've seen ermine uh, run in and out of them. We're, we're not sure quite what the ermine are doing. We think maybe they're after pups. Um, we've seen them being chased out by uh, adult mama marmots from time to time. So uh, that that's a possibility. Um, and then a lot of alpine pollinators, too, use those burrows. So th that's uh, sort of the quick introduction to our, uh, our Vancouver Island marmot, this uh, marvelous sort of ground-dwelling squirrel that lives up in the high alpine and and creates these uh, these burrows and uh, turns over soil for these incredible alpine wildflower meadows. It's really neat how they sort of become self-sustaining in that way. Uh, and it's like when you watch some of the BBC Earth, uh, that, those wonderful documentaries, and you see them go to these wildly remote locations and find, you know, like the, there's the one, the species of goat that can jump up and down a cliff. Um, and it learned to adapt to do that because the foxes can climb short cliffs, but not tall. Like it's just, it's, it's really neat when we get an opportunity to see adaptation uh, sort of at work in such a specific way. It really is. And, you know, I, I totally agree that, and the marmots are a great example of that. You're in this, as I say, really harsh environment. So, the requirements for survival there are, are so high that you can really see how every little uh, facet of their, of their environment, they've, they've become adapted to it. Or in the case of the marmots, that they've modified their environment by, again, mostly by digging burrows and turning over large amounts of soil. So they've actually created these habitat modifications to enable them to persist there. And uh, it is, as you say, it's just incredible. Their hibernation is phenomenal. Like you, they lose 30% of their body mass and their heart rate slows down to something like four beats a minute. Oh, that's, so, that's barely moving blood at that point. Barely, barely moving. Their body temperature can drop to as low as six degrees Celsius. So uh, it, it's about freezing. They can't, they can't freeze solid like we hear about some frogs and whatnot. But but extremely cold. Their whole digestive system shuts down. And when they do, when we talk about them using up a lot of their body mass, in reality, when their bodies are that slow, they're using practically no energy at all. And all that energy is used when they come out of hibernation to reinvigorate their bodies. They have to reform their whole digestive system. And um, 
I mean, it's actually a really stressful time of year for both the marmots and us. You end up with this strange scenario where marmots don't starve to death during hibernation itself because, again, they're using so little energy. But they can actually starve to death after they've just after they've woken up because if they don't have that stored energy there to reinvigorate their digestive system, even though there's can be food available for them, they don't have any ability yet to process it. So they have to store all of this energy in the fall that they're actually not going to use right up until the beginning of spring. It kind of sounds like when my wife goes away, um, <laughs> I just have to hold on to that pizza a little bit longer. Um, now, although these 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 animals are are incredible at what they've done, they haven't done well uh, in in recent modern history. We'll call it. What happens to get this this wildly uh, uh, sort of hardy species down to I think it's fewer than thirty at one point. Yeah, so you know it probably helps to start uh, you know with the evolutionary history, I suppose, or a long history of the Vancouver Island marmot. So we think that they probably first arrived on Vancouver Island during the last ice age and quickly uh, adapted and became a unique species on this island. And at that point in time, there's evidence to suggest that marmots were really widespread on Vancouver Island. We found marmot bones in sea caves on the west coast of the island. But as the Ice Age receded, the marmots uh, moved up in habitat along with uh, with the ice. So again, they're, they're an alpine species. So you can imagine when this island was covered with ice, uh, that's marmot habitat all over the place. But as it receded, the marmots receded with it, and they ended up going up and up and up. Now, they found these little refuges at the tops of mountains, sort of scattered across the central spine of the island. But for them to be able to survive, they had to be able to move from one of those little islands to another. And that sort of situation persisted probably for about 8,000 years. And then over the last... 30 to 40 years, uh, we started making a lot of large-scale landscape changes to Vancouver Island. And even though we didn't go right into marmot habitat, there's not a lot in those subalpine bowls for people to do other than to photograph wildflowers. Uh, there's no trees there to cut. Marmots like to live in tree-free areas. So the changes we made weren't to that marmot's habitat itself, but rather to the habitats that surrounded it. And by opening those spaces up, punching in lots of roads, and also by introducing some species, most notably cottontail rabbits. Um, we, we changed the relationship between marmots and the species that lived around them. Suddenly, predators that uh, would have had a fairly difficult time getting into marmot habitat, it would always have been there, but it would have been challenging to get up into those subalpine meadows, and, and not a lot there for them. Marmots might make a tasty snack, but they're not a primary food species for any of our large predators. Suddenly, it was a lot easier for them to get up into those spots, particularly roads, uh, made it a lot less energy intensive for cougars and wolves to get up there. At the same time, by opening those uh, areas up, those forested areas that used to be just below marmot habitat, ungulates like elk and deer started moving up in elevation. And so cougars and wolves, who predate on them, started following them up in elevation, too. And at the same time, those same openings mimicked the type of habitat that marmots really look for. So marmots that were dispersing. At two years old, uh, marmots often leave their colonies, and they go out and they search for new habitat, new colonies. 
And that's really important for the species. That's how the species stays healthy and exchanges genetics and prevents inbreeding. But with these artificial sort of openings, cut blocks and clear cuts, a lot of those marmots were attracted out of their meadows. And instead of going to a, a good meadow, they ended up in these uh, sort of artificial spots. And the big problem there is that those artificial areas weren't actually going to be kept tree free. And so as soon as the tree started growing back up, the open visual uh, ability to see predators that marmots really rely on was disrupted and they, they ended up becoming food for predators there as well. So we created this population sink at the same time as we created uh, the, the potential for predators to get into marmot habitat more often. And then the last one I mentioned quickly was that uh, we introduced cottontail rabbits on Vancouver Island. And they quickly moved and established themselves in, a, again, a lot of these open spaces. And golden eagles followed them onto Vancouver Island. Golden eagles are a species that uh, historically were um, very uncommon on the island. They, they occurred here occasionally, but we didn't have any records of them nesting until about 40 years ago. But the introduction of cottontail rabbits provided a food source for them. Golden eagles started to arrive, started to colonize, uh, not huge numbers, but unfortunately, a, a marmot is a primary prey species for golden eagles. So uh, those sort of issues, and again, all related to modifying habitat, not the marmot's habitat itself, but those, those habitats around and just below where marmots like to live, really created a, a confluence of influences that dramatically hurt the marmot's population. I think the hardest part about it is that we didn't recognize that particularly early. There's things we, we could have and, and should have done, um, but there weren't a lot of people up in those alpine areas. And because of that, you know, when early reports started coming out about from naturalists and alpine hiking clubs that were going up there from time to time, um, some of the some of the questions were unfortunately dismissed. So, you know, you get somebody who'd go up into a, you know, a spot like Marmot Mountain and, uh, and say, you know, there used to be a really big colony. Like I only saw, you know, two marmots when I was up there this time. You know, is there a, you know, is it a lack of marmots? And and the issue is, you know, somebody would say, well, you know, maybe, maybe there's fewer marmots, but maybe Cougar walked through the meadow, you know, two hours before you did and all the marmots were hiding. And that's true, that happens. So there was a lot of questions about whether the marmots were really disappearing or there just weren't enough people with eyes on them. So it wasn't in the end until the, the late 1990s that we really recognized and really thanks again to a couple of naturalist clubs and, and alpine clubs who were very vocal about saying, this is not just marmots hiding. There are not marmots here where there used to be marmots in the past. And, uh, and as a result of that, um, fortunately, action was finally taken to start recovering the species. Uh, as you say, at its lowest point, uh, the population was continuing to crash even after the recovery effort started. At its lowest point, it reached uh, less than 30 marmots left in the wild. And that, that was in 2003. And for a species that has a, a relatively small and low reproductive uh, output, that's ecologically frightening to recognize that the population got that small. Yeah, I, with any species, when you're talking about numbers that low, you really are at the very bottom end of what uh, is recoverable at all. Um, 
you know, there's a, you need a certain amount of genetic diversity to be able to, to bring a species back. And we were very fortunate, we being the recovery effort, um, we're very fortunate that we still had enough diversity to work with to, to recover the species, but it was frighteningly close to uh, another extinction. Well, and before we get into the recovery effort that you have chosen, I find very interesting the recovery efforts you haven't chosen. And this is something that I really enjoyed uh, when we first spoke last year uh, about the Vancouver Island Marmot Recovery Foundation, is that you're not looking at predator control, uh, although predators do play a role. And in a lot of traditional conservation efforts, and by conservation efforts, I, I am referring to the North American uh, uh, model of wildlife conservation, which is very game uh, specific. Uh, predator control is one of the first actions taken. Why is it not the priority of the foundation? So I should I should say we don't look at lethal predator control. So we're not yes, interested in sorry, going out and yeah. killing predators, but we do want to look very closely at predator control in that habitat sense, right? So in that sense of recreating the kinds of conditions where marmots and their predators existed in uh, in relative balance. So that 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 um, is a way of thinking of predator control that we definitely pursue. But we're not interested in lethal predator control, and, and we're not interested in a number of reasons. One, our, our vision is that marmots will be recovered in the wild to the point where we can really step away from, from this recovery effort. And we really believe that that's possible. But the reality is that marmots are going to be eaten. There are predators that that eat them. So if if we start to really engage in a you know a lot of of predator control, then um, we we're never going to achieve that point where where the marmots have the tools, the social tools in particular, that they need to be able to recognize and avoid predators. I also think it's worth recognizing that predators play an incredibly important role in our ecosystems. Marmots are obviously near and dear to our heart, but I think we would go uh, amiss to restore one species at the expense of, uh, you know, a number of others. Predators play foundational roles in the way that our ecosystems function, including marmot ecosystems. And so I am extremely leery of uh, disrupting that. Um, and as I say, to, to restore one species at the expense of another um, seems problematic. So. We, as we've discussed, we really pushed, you know, exactly how far you can go with a species uh, in terms of reaching extinction. But we feel fortunate right now that we're not at that point and that we believe we have the tools to recover the marmot uh, without using uh, lethal predator control. And that looking at habitat is really um habitat in terms of predator control, trying to identify those features that marmots rely on to detect and avoid predators, that that's really our best avenue for long-term success for the marmots and for species in the surrounding ecosystems. Yeah, it's certainly something that we're, we're hearing more and more about. Um, and though I think currently it seems kind of like a, yeah, duh. Um, it's, it's remarkable that even still, a lot of policy is based on science that doesn't uh, hold up anymore. Specifically, in what you're saying is, I mean, you, you can argue the ethical uh, until you're blue in the face, but the reality is when you start disrupting that ecosystem, uh, you don't always know what's going to happen. 
And that is, as we have discussed, exactly how we ended up with fewer than 30 marmots in the wild to begin with. So uh, you did, however, look heavily into, uh, uh, I believe, controlled breeding and release, uh, which is something that I, I don't know much about myself and I don't read much about. Most uh, confined breeding I'm aware of is for zoos as opposed to uh, uh, re-release. So what's that program look like and what role does it play? Yeah, and this was certainly controversial at the time, you know, what uh, what the right approach was. But with the number of marmots that we had left on the landscape, we were really concerned that if we didn't bring marmots into captivity to start breeding them, that uh, they could just slip away, that they, they would simply die, you know, and we wouldn't have any opportunity to recover the species. So this seemed like the safest approach for us to actually bring the species back. So... Initially, over a period of uh, six years, um, there were 50 marmots in total that were taken out of the wild. Uh, the goal was to target as broad a genetic range of marmots. That was the, with the numbers that we had left, that, that admittedly was our top priority, was to ensure that we could uh, capture as much of the genetic diversity as we possibly could. Um, but then also, you know, if we had choices to try and select marmots that we felt had the lowest chance of survival in the wild, and they were brought into captivity initially at the Toronto Zoo, uh, and then we expanded the captive breeding program to the Calgary Zoo, and finally to a facility on Mount Washington itself that, uh, that the foundation operates. And from there, those captive bred marmots would reproduce, and then we would take their pups and release their pups back out to the wild. So those 55 marmots uh, have enabled us to release over, well, 500 marmots uh, this, this past week. We released our 500th marmot to the wild. And it's enabled us to reintroduce marmots to some spots where they had been completely extirpated. So if we think about Strathcona Park, uh, marmots were, were completely gone in Strathcona Park. There were, there were none left. And through that captive breeding program, we've been able to reintroduce marmots there. And, and while the population is still fragile and growing, uh, we do have uh, about eight colonies of marmots now in the park. And there they are growing. So that is just an incredible success for us. Um, so that that has really been our, you know, we talk about predator control. We sometimes joke that our primary predator control is just to try and release marmots faster than the predators can eat them. Um, it, uh, I don't want to think that we're engaged in a cougar feeding program. That's an exaggeration. It does feel like that some days, but, uh, but yeah, that, that has really been a core part of our, of our program. And, and part of that is driven by the fact that we do have marmot habitat to release marmots to. And from a species recovery standpoint, I, we're extremely fortunate to have that. Most species, when you look at, you know, why they're endangered or, you know, why they're on the verge of extinction. It's because of large scale habitat disruption to their core habitat. So it's really hard. Like, where are you going to release animals to? For marmots, though, we we actually have their core habitat both available and in relatively good shape. We do habitat restoration where we think it's needed, but that habitat is there and we can have a spot to release marmots too. So, uh, it's been a really successful program for us, and it's been a, a really good partnership. We've worked with two zoos, uh, and we still have captive breeding programs at both the Toronto and Calgary Zoo. 
And, uh, and those, those zoos have also provided a lot of expertise and animal care expertise uh, that have enabled us to, to get us to the point where we're at today. Well, and the marmots are released as pups, is that correct? Sorry, I, I probably said that, but that was um, not quite right. So they're released as yearlings. So they're born in captivity. So uh, the marmots were just uh, born earlier this spring. But then they need to stay with their moms for a while. They need their, like all mammals, you know, their moms produce milk to feed them. And they also need to learn social behavior. So uh, marmots are social animals. They communicate with each other. And so they'll learn that as well with their moms in, the, in early life. So then as yearlings, once they've had their first hibernation, we'll release them to the wild then. Okay. Um, yeah, it was just the, the looking at what was uh, written in one media account versus what you had said. So I just wanted to figure that one out. Sorry. Um, yeah. I probably missed the book back. I uh, blame you personally and will write you a, sure. a strongly worded letter in response. I look forward to it. All right. <laughs> you're, not you're supposed to quiver in fear of me. Oh, oh, sorry. All yeah. right. I can hear the quivering now. Um, now, 53 weeks ago, you and I spoke about 30 missing Vancouver Island marmots. Uh, at the time, there was a lot of theories around what had happened. And, and the story was more or less that the transmitters embedded in them uh, failed to activate following hibernation. Um, what, what did we learn? from that have we figured out what happened to them or did you sort of end up just sort of picking the most likely hypothesis there's always going to be a lot of doubt when you're dealing with a species that lives in in the kinds of environments that these marmots do uh, we feel that there is enough evidence out there for us to suggest that a lot of those mortalities were tied to a very uh, prolonged drought in the fall of 2015 so during that period, there was no rain on Vancouver Island right through October, which is extremely unusual. And we talked earlier about how marmots rely on putting on weight to survive hibernation, to survive coming out of hibernation. So during that period, what our crews noticed was that the foliage on the hills was all brown and, and dried up. Uh, we had never experienced anything like that before, and unfortunately, we didn't recognize the, the threat that existed there. So many of the marmots, too many of them, when they went into hibernation, they didn't have enough body fat to recover from hibernation, and, and they perished. Uh, others, uh, we found their transmitters, they'd been predated on, but the marmots were a long ways from where they, they actually hibernate. And our speculation, and admittedly it is just speculation, is that when the hillsides are drying up, the marmots in the fall are usually within a couple meters of their burrow. They don't go very far. There's lots of food there for them. And they start to play it really, really safe. So in the spring, they might be a little bit more adventurous, but they start to get very conservative in the late fall. But because of the lack of food, we think that many of them had to go further to actually find green vegetation and that, that exposed them to uh, to more risk, to more predators. Um, so we feel quite strongly that it was tied to that drought in the fall. And it's certainly something that we're now uh, far more keenly aware that uh, if we start to see that those kind of conditions, you know, brown, dried foliage in the fall that we need to... Um, we need to start taking some some type of uh, remedial action. So that would likely look at uh, putting in feeders so the marmots can stay close to home. 
while still getting access to high quality food. Now, would there be a concern there? I mean, we, we obviously talk about not feeding wildlife intentionally uh, on a daily basis these days. Um, of course, you know, when we talk about supplemental feeding or diversionary feeding, it's, it, it is normally done by those with the scientific expertise under very closely guided or very closely monitored guidelines. W- would there be a concern with the marmots that they would very quickly become habituated to uh, or food conditioned to these feeders, that it could influence uh, disease and spread and things like that? Or is it something, the risk of losing that many out of a population of around 200 would be too great? I don't ever want to downplay the risks that are associated with any intervention. So there are risks associated with feeding. And I think you hit on the big one, which is that they could become habituated to the feeders uh, and dependent on them. We, we haven't seen that. Uh, when we release marmots to the wild, these are marmots that are going from living in a zoo, always getting you know hand-fed, essentially, getting food placed in their holes. And we see them starting to eat wild vegetation within an hour of being released to the wild. So they, they do seem overall to prefer wild vegetation to the stuff that we give them, but they'll eat the stuff, uh, and we feed them Missouri primate biscuits, which are... Um, Leafy. That sounds very specific. It is. Um, and it's actually designed for primates that, uh, particularly corellas in zoos, that actually have a really similar diet to marmots. They lots of leafy plant material, but but generalists. So there is a, there's definite concern. We definitely don't want people um, trying to feed marmots. Marmots uh their digestive system is adapted for this, you know, sort of large amounts of leafy plant material. And so things like uh, apples, we actually had one marmot at, uh, at a site where, where the public does have access. Uh, we had one marmot that actually died as a result of eating too many apples. It, um, it developed an uncontrollable bacterial infection in its digestive system just because the apples are so high in sugar compared to a marmot's normal diet. And they just couldn't process it, eh? They, they could, yeah. And the bacterial infection it just got out of control because, the again, they're not used to having that much sugar in their guts. It stayed there for way too long. And, uh, and that marmot, unfortunately, died as a result. So we're pretty keenly aware of um, trying to ensure that the marmots don't become dependent on the food. I mean, that, that's our first uh, goal. Um, and, uh, and then as well to, you know, make sure that they're still in actual good health. I mean... Um, that would be something we're looking at really keenly. Fortunately, we haven't had to do supplemental feeding in the fall yet. We probably should have in 2015. Uh, hindsight, though, is 2020. And last year, the fall was wonderful. And we've had phenomenal overwinter success this year. So, you know, it it's always a challenge when you're working with these species. And when there's about 200 marmots in the wild now. Um, so that population is still incredibly low. And, and we're... Uh, always deeply concerned. You know, when you lose 30, that, that's over 10% of the population. Yeah, yeah. That's I remember it was a very significant loss, uh, sort of regardless of the reason. Uh, but you've, you've released, again, it was five more last week at 500 total releases now on Vancouver Island. What's next? Is it sort of continue doing the same thing or is it hoping to slowly phase the, uh, the, the foundation kind of out of the business of recovering marmots? No, we've got work ahead of us for a while yet. So we, we're we not done. 
Uh, our goal is to see that the marmots are stable in the wild and able to uh, sustain or increase their population without our, without our intervention. Um, so we, we don't know exactly what that number is, but we think it's probably closer to 1,000 marmots than to 200. Uh, so we do have work ahead of us, and some of that work is more of the same. We really feel like the captive breeding program is uh, still an important part of what we're doing. Um, but we're also looking at a lot of techniques to try and ensure that the marmots have as much success in the wild as possible. So that includes habitat restoration, which I mentioned earlier. Um, unfortunately, our alpine ecosystems and subalpine ecosystems are uh, experiencing climate change at a a higher pace, more rapidly than we are down here at sea level. Uh, and we're noticing already that uh, avalanches aren't as effective in clearing trees uh, as they used to be in the past. So we have to go in by hand now at some marmot meadows and actually uh, remove you know, small trees that are growing up or low branches that would provide stocking cover to maintain that, that meadow that the marmots rely on. And of course, things like that drought in the fall uh, we are increasingly aware that we need to be uh, more on the lookout for extraordinary weather events and think about what kinds of impacts those might have on the marmots than we have been in the past. Um, so those sorts of things. And then looking at that habitat around marmots, working with private landowners that have marmot colonies on their land and with public landowners like, uh, like BC Parks to ensure that we're maintaining not just the marmots habitat itself, but those surrounding habitats that have a big impact on the marmot's future. So it's a, it's a combination of approaches, but we know that we still have work ahead of us. We still have a fair amount of work, but we, we are, I think, on the right path at the moment. And is the, the knowledge that you're attaining through uh, experience, through the biology, the ecology, and just the, the practical management of people, as well as uh, ecosystems and animals, transferable to other situations, do you think? Is this something that can sort of people observe and maybe apply to their specific concern wherever they may be? Yeah, we certainly have uh, both borrowed from other species recovery programs quite heavily, and, and we've had a number of others that have used the work that we've done and applied it to, to their species recovery programs. Um, so I, I think there is a lot that can be learned from this. And, and there's a lot that can be learned from the technical side. How do you care for some of these animals in the wild? How do you reintroduce them? What kinds of things do you want to be looking at? And we're, we are still in the process of learning. We don't, uh, we feel like we've got some good tools, but you know, we want to make sure that they're, uh, as good as possible. So we're continually trying to refine those, um, and share what we've learned with others and, and learn from them as well. We also think that there's a lot that people can learn from this program and the way that we've worked with uh, private landowners. Uh, and we've had a lot of success with building a partnership that includes the general public. You know, most of our funding comes from, from individual donors across Canada, uh, as well as uh, using that to leverage government and private landowners to make sure that they stay engaged and, and support the recovery. And that's been a, a real success story. So I hope that that's a model for, for other recovery programs as well. Excellent. And for people who want to get involved with the Marmot Foundation, Vancouver Island Marmot Recovery Foundation, sorry, um, or, or to help out in some way, regardless of where they are, what would you advise? What, what would be most useful to the foundation? 
Well, depending on where you are in Canada, obviously we do rely on donations from the public. So uh, your donations are incredibly appreciated. I, I really think, you know, we've been doing this for, for some time now, but th this is really a crowdfunded recovery. I mean, we wouldn't have this species today if it weren't for the support of, of Canadians. So I, I am incredibly grateful to the people who have supported us. And certainly, you know, people's donations are what make it possible for us to do this work. If you live on Vancouver Island and you see a marmot, please let us know. Um, I don't know exactly what's driven it, but this year in particular, we've recovered now, I think we're up to five marmots that have strayed out of their normal habitats and into inappropriate areas. We've talked about this, that marmots disperse. They don't always pick the right direction to go. The population is so low though, that every marmot counts. And so those recoveries, the being able to recover those individual marmots, those marmots are really valuable. We know that those marmots can survive in the wild because they're at least a year old. They've been out there their whole lives. Those marmots have a real chance to contribute to the future of this species if we're able to get them into a spot where there's a, you know, another marmot for them to have babies with and out of these lowland areas where they'll almost inevitably end up being food for uh, a cougar or if they end up in a, a rural or urban area, then you know sometimes they can get killed by dogs or, or other animals as well. So if you see a marmot, you know tell us about it. Let us know, and uh, and we can follow up on it. To learn more about the Vancouver Island Marmot Recovery Foundation or get involved with their work, visit them online at marmot.org. That's it for this week, folks. Thanks everyone for listening. And please remember to follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Defender Radio to help grow our audience and provide even more advocacy for the animals. Until next time, this is Michael Howie for Defender Radio, reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.